Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk about stress, but not the kind of watered-down media stress that you've probably been hearing about lately, like it's the end of the world, uh, pick which uh, plague you're looking at, uh, locusts. Uh, by the way, there are locusts emerging this year in case you needed something else to be worried about, uh, or pandemics or uh, injustice and racism and things like that. There's a lot of stuff going on and all of those create emotional stress, but there's also physical stress and biological stress. And I have someone who I've really come to respect coming back on the show for the second time to talk about something called hormesis, which is how some stress makes you stronger. If you are a longtime listener, you might remember when I had an interview with a guy with the memorable name of Seam Land, who wrote a book called Metabolic Autophagy. And in that interview, we talked about how you can actually use your metabolism to get rid of cells they don't really want. And in that conversation, we talked about how bulletproof coffee during a fast doesn't turn off at least the most important forms of, of autophagy based on his research, based on my research and things like that. So you still get a few sort of fasting uh, purists who are saying, if you have anything besides water, you're a bad person. And it turns out you can actually hack your fast with all sorts of things like I don't plant compounds and all that. Seam has a new book though that is really good, right in alignment with the things uh, that you've learned here and things that if you're just paying attention, you might've heard about that stress makes you stronger, but not too much. And his book is called Stronger by Stress. It just came out on Amazon. And I think this is the first interview he's doing about the book. 516 pages, 2,072 research references. That means he put a lot of time and energy into it. Uh, Seem is a researcher uh, who likes to go really deep uh, the way I do. And uh, you just find that when he says something, there's a reason he says it. Seem, welcome back to Bulletproof Radio. Hey, Dave. I'm uh, glad to be back and uh, glad to talk with you. <laughs> You are hanging out in Estonia, uh, where you live. Yeah, that's right. So is hormesis, this idea that stress makes you stronger, is this a, a core part of Estonian belief systems? Do you walk around uh, wrapping yourselves in ice <laughs> or saunas or any of that? Is, is this a, a cultural thing for you or is this just because you're a geek? Uh, well, I would say that uh, a lot of uh, similar hormetic practices are a part of the culture here, like uh, the sauna has been practiced here for like, the, you know, centuries. And uh, I myself have started using the sauna since I was like a child. So I can remember like when I was age four with my brother, we were sitting in a sauna with the parents and uh, we would get like our hormesis on from heat. So I would imagine that, yeah, like a lot of people are engaged with some form of like winter swimming and uh, heat, heat saunas and uh, exercise and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, but the biohacking itself is um, like a novel way of approaching it. That's fantastic. Uh, I believe that in the US, at least, a lot of that stuff we've lost, and you know, there's some bodybuilding and, and all, but saunas until recently have, have not really been a big thing. They've experienced a comeback. Uh, and I don't really know when we lost that or why we lost it, uh, but it, it seems like it's uh, it's just not been there. And then you get real far north into Canada where I live now, and at least, well, you just it's winter all the time up here, yeah. <laughs> at least half the time. <laughs> so you get hormesis because it's just cold, but you get sort of those tough people walking out and hunting grizzly bears with their bare teeth and all. So I, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really know what what happened there, but it, it feels like fasting and all that stuff just sort of went away. What about fasting in Estonia? It, is that a part of the culture? Uh, not really. Like uh, 
I would um, like most people don't do like a keto diet or uh, that thing. They don't do fasting or intermittent fasting. Some people do, but uh, it hasn't been a part of the culture. So, uh, but you know, fasting has been a part of many other cultures and uh, similar hormetic practices like the sauna and uh, cold. They are used in basically across the world. And I'm I'm afraid like these kind of um, ancient uh, habits have disappeared just because of the modern, comfortable environment that we find ourselves in. So people, you know, the human nature is that we want to avoid things that are painful and uh, discomfortable. So we much rather not do them unless we have like a dire reason. So because of like central heating, because of the, the pantry and because of supermarkets, we don't, we're not forced to experience these beneficial stressors. Whereas in the past, those uh, beneficial stressors were already uh, woven into our everyday life, like uh, they were a part of just existence. And uh, nowadays, people are have I, I think people have become slightly too fragile and too weak against even like these milder stressors, like just just a little bit of cold and <laughs> just a little bit of heat. Those things they aren't they aren't as dangerous as like running away from a lion or actual like an asteroid or volcano. I feel like in in Europe something big happened, and it was around uh, World War Two. Many, many people went without enough food for a couple of years. Uh, in fact, even my grandmother, uh, I, and she's 97 now, uh, she doesn't waste a tiny scrap of food. Like, it doesn't matter if you're not hungry, you clean your plate. And it's because there were times of real serious shortage. You know, there, there were times, in fact, in her, uh, her memories, there's a time when all of her sisters stopped growing for a year because there just wasn't enough food for them to eat. So these periods of forced famine uh, create sort of societal thing saying, oh my God, you will die if you don't eat. Because at some time in recent last hundred years, people did die from not eating. So now there's an, an inherent fear that's maybe stronger than it needs to be. And it feels like there's more of that in Europe than there is uh, in the US. But even here, we have more obesity and people saying, like I did when I weighed 300 pounds, you know, if I don't eat six times a day, I'll go into starvation mode and then I'll starve and I'll die and it'll suck and and all that. And what was going on in my head? Was this an emotional issue uh, where this is emotional stress or was this a physical thing that was going on? What would you, what would you hypothesize? Uh, yeah, there, there are like, uh, you know, different types of stress and uh, some of the stress is uh, physical and some of that is uh, emotional as well. So um, what, like, let's maybe define what stress is as well. So stress yeah. is stress is by definition uh, disruption in the body's homeostasis. And the homeostasis is the balance or the equilibrium where your body is functioning at its optimal state. Uh, it's in peace, so to say. And uh, stress disrupts that, uh, kind of puts the body out of balance. And uh, the the body experiences these different stressors based upon how adapted it is to the stress and what kind of a stress it is. So for example, like, uh, you know, skipping a meal may not be a stressful event for someone who is used to intermittent fasting, whereas it might be very stressful for someone who is, you know, used to eating six meals a day. Or for another example, running a marathon may not be that stressful for like an athlete, but it's definitely stressful for, you know, someone who isn't used to exercising. So stress is always very context dependent as well. It's based upon mm -hmm. the individual and the situation or even like how they perceive it. So, uh, we come across many various stressors on a daily basis and uh, they affect us both on a physical level and on an emotional level. So uh, there's this thing called allostasis as well, which is a kind of predictive programming of uh, how your body kind of anticipates these future stressors based upon 
based upon past memories and the past uh, events. So if the body has, you know, in the past has experienced famine, then the body can kind of maybe install or retain some of those memories inside there. So in the future, you're going to react uh, in a way of more scarcity because, you know, you kind of draw upon these memories and therefore you go into like, okay, <laughs> you, you know, the hunter-gatherer example is the perfect of it. Like you, the hunter-gatherer, they would uh, fast very often. They would skip uh, meals, and uh, whenever they did eat, they would eat a lot uh, because uh, they would, uh, you know, think that I don't know when my next meal is going to come from. So therefore, I'm going to gorge and uh, gain a bunch of uh, calories and uh, weight to kind of compensate for the lack of scarcity. And the same applies to humans uh, in the modern world as well. So if we if we experience too much stress on a daily basis, then it can just over overburden the system and create disruption and homeostasis. And uh, if we if we lack certain like uh, like either physical resources or if we like emotional coping mechanisms, then we 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 will eventually just uh, you know cause some uh, damage in the body and uh, bring it out of out of balance. That idea of homeostasis, this optimal thing, I the more I've studied biology and how to hack ourselves and the whole biohacking. I don't believe that there is such a thing as homeostasis. And, and the reason is that, and you're looking at me going, what are you talking about? I just wrote a book about this. Uh, here's why. We like to think we're standing still, right? But if you are standing on a stress plate, you find that you're actually rotating in a small circle, that your body's moving like a cone if you plot it out. So our perception is that we're standing still, but the reality is that we're making micro adjustments all the time and that the shape and frequency and size of that cone of movement that's imperceptible to us is predictive of neurological disease. In other words, you feel normal, but if you're moving in a non-circular cone and it's kind of oblong or it's jittery, something's going on and you're, you're, mechanisms that are invisible to you that correct what you're doing, how you're standing in space, those mechanisms are slightly off and it shows in your movement, but no one can see it without data. And it feels like homeostasis doesn't exist. What's going on is you're either having giant swings in one direction than the other direction, or when you feel like you're in homeostasis, you're just making small adjustments all the time. But it's there's no such thing as perfect flat line optimal. It's just small squiggles away from the line. Uh, versus, uh, oh, I actually got there. No, I'm perfectly in homeostasis. I'm optimal. It's like, no, you're not. You're 1% off of optimal, but you corrected it before you noticed it. You think I'm right or am I wrong? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I agree that there isn't uh, something that is you know balanced. There isn't uh, a state of complete equi equilibrium because that would mean that you're dead. Like, <laughs> being, <laughs> exactly. Being alive means that you are constantly fluctuating between different states and uh, you know, examples of homeostasis include like your body temperature. Your body temperature is never exactly 37 degrees Celsius. It's constantly fluctuating throughout the day. Uh, your metabolic rate isn't always the same every day. It fluctuates every day. Uh, your uh, hormones aren't the same. They fluctuate every day. Your body weight fluctuates all the time. Your water weight, all those things. So yeah, homeostasis itself as a phenomenon isn't stagnant. It's constantly moving. And uh, uh, I think there is uh, like a you know there's a certain range uh, that fits into the homeostasis. So uh, you know the the average human body temperature is between you know 36 degrees Celsius up until 37.5 or something like that. And if your body stays within that range, then it's then it is in somewhat of a homeostatic state. And only if it goes uh, beyond that, where it is going to be disrupted. So uh, there's your body kind of needs 
to uh, needs to have like a buffer zone in order to preserve uh, resources for the brain. Because if you were to constantly focus on these minor fluctuations in your temperature and homeostasis, then you, you wouldn't be able to you know, go out and hunt. You would always be focused on these very small, insignificant uh, changes and fluctuations. So it's sort of like blinking. You don't have to consciously blink, but you can. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that you write about is something that is uh, very important and, and underwritten about in any of you know, the health magazines and, and things like that. And uh, you talk about it in the original term called adaptation energy that goes back to Hans Selyer. Sel Sel I don't even know how you say the guy's name. It's not English. Selyer, it's a German name, I believe. But he wrote about the general adaptation syndrome, sort of the, the father of hormesis, you could say. What is adaptation energy in the way you talk about it and why is it important? Hans Salje, he created this term adaptation energy to uh, describe, uh, you know, the body's resource or the organism's resources to cope with stress. And uh, his perspective was that uh, he created like certain axioms for that, uh, for adaptation energy. And he, he claimed that, you know, adaptation energy is a finite supply and you create, you get, you get that supply at birth and uh, you only have like a certain amount for your entire life. So every stress in your life, every every stressful situation, every sleepless night, every burger that you eat, all those have like a depleting effect on that adaptation energy. And uh, eventually, as you get older, your adaptation energy just becomes decreased constantly and drained from those small stressors. And once your adaptation energy is depleted, or if it's very low, then you'll basically, you'll get like sick or you'll die. So he did a lot of research on mice, particularly. Uh, but, you know, I would say that's not uh, like a really accurate way of uh, describing how stress works or, and uh, how humans are able to adapt to it. Because, uh, you know, we are able to, you know, recover and we're also able to replenish some of that adaptation energy to a certain extent. So there's one other researcher who came after Hans Selye. He's a uh, Goldstone. And uh, he wrote a few decades later that he thought that the adaptation energy can be restored and uh, recreate it as long as there's enough time for recovery. So that's basically the idea of hormesis, that if you do exp get exposed to a small amount of stress, then uh, you can bounce back and you can get stronger, or you can like just uh, recover, reach back to the previous state as long as you have like recovery. So th I think that is, uh, that is particularly more accurate, uh, or uh, it makes more sense in mm -hmm. the sense that, that we humans wouldn't have survived for so long if we have just a finite amount of uh, like resources for dealing with stress. Well, the, the idea that was at the very foundation of, uh, of Headstrong, it was all about the fact that I, even that type of energy I find, or that theory to be kind of BS. It, it, the reason for it is that it's just electrons. <laughs> End of the day, if you have any energy in the body, it's electrons. And electrons come from air, uh, and food combining, and whether they do it efficiently and effectively, uh, that's kind of what happens. <laughs> so if you're going to have adaptation energy, the question is, okay, energy comes out of a cell or out of a mitochondria, uh, goes through its transport network, and then do you use it to get stronger or do you use it to worry or <laughs> do you use it to deal with some other physical stressor? And the body will allocate that stuff automatically. And if you worry a lot, it'll say, oh, I must have to pay attention to the worry instead of folding a protein. And if you're not too worried and you got enough energy, it says, oh, let's fold some proteins or clean some cells. 
so it's really just mitochondria, which funny enough, that's chapter two of your book, you know, mitohormesis <laughs> and autophagy. Yeah, do yeah, you... Exactly. Uh, do you ascribe to that perspective that it is all just energy? Or do you think that those old original thinker masters were onto something that there's kind of a different kind of energy or a different allocation mechanism for energy for resilience in humans? Uh, well, I would think that uh, there might be certain uh, like specific nutrients that or specific types of energy that you need to deal yeah. with certain stress. Like, for example... Uh, in the example of the allostasis that I mentioned, there is a type two allostasis, which uh, essentially describes uh, like this emotional depletion. You can be in type two allostasis uh, and in a stressed out response, even if you have like plenty of energy, like you can be, you can be overnourished by calories and still be in a stressed out state uh, because because of like some emotional. Uh, depletion from the resources. So I think there are different types of energy, and a lot of the times, and the the kind of your perception of it can also very dictate how your body uses that energy. Mm. So uh, if you're like in anx anxiety, you're ruminating about negative thoughts and past them, past trauma, then that is kind of robbing that energy and keeping your body in this constantly fight or flight state, and you never. You're, you won't you won't be able to detoxify properly. You won't be able to produce energy properly. You won't be able to build muscle. You won't be able to burn fat because the body is prioritizing dealing with the stress uh, or protecting against that stress because it's in you. It thinks it's in like this massive scarcity. Yeah. So wherever, where, wherever, and whenever you kind of flip that perspective, uh, then uh, you can get out of it. So like, I think that it's very hard to become healthy if your mindset is broken or if you're like uh, mentally too anxious because it creates this uh, subliminal chronic stress all the time. And and that then tells the, the cellular behavior to not go into this uh, adaptation mode, but to go into defense mode. And yeah, if you have old traumas playing around in your head and uh, you know, you're constantly anxious because you're reading the news all the time, magically you, whether you're in an under or an, an over calorie or under calorie state, you end up not getting the biological results you want because basically you're tweaking all the time. Okay, uh, so I'd, I'd say we we're seeing that similarly there. Uh, tell me more about mitohormesis. This is one of my favorite uh, favorite words. Uh, so tell me how you what it is and how you would turn it on. Yeah, totally. It's a awesome awesome word, and it basically describes mitochondrial hormesis. And uh, like you already mentioned, the mitochondria are producing energy and hormesis is adaptation to stress. So uh, the mitochondria are experiencing stress, you know, all the time because uh, any, any form of uh, biochemical reaction and uh, energy production and breathing even, they cause mild free radical production in the mitochondria. And uh, those free radicals, they can, they can cause like excess oxidative stress depending on, uh, you know, if you're in constantly constantly under oxidative stress, then they eventually will uh, damage the mitochondria and become make, make them turn dysfunctional. But uh, a small amount of them are actually necessary because you don't really want to blunt all of it. Um, you need some small amounts of stress for the body to adapt to it, and especially the mitochondria to also become stronger from the stress. So uh, mitohormesis uh, describes that where the mitochondria are uh, just 
uh, adapting to the stress uh, in, in the small, in a hormetic dose. Uh, like too much is bad, but too little is also bad. So the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. Uh, I love that perspective. Tell me about xenohormesis and mithraism. Uh, these are things that people oftentimes don't know about. I know uh, Paul Saldino was on uh, the show a while back and we talked about some of this in the perspective of the carnivore diet. I know he's been on your show as well. Uh, so he's sort of a plant compounds are always bad. I'm in the, yikes, you know, back in 2011, I was saying, guys, lectins and oxalates are going to mess you up if, if you're certain types of people and certain and things like these are plant toxins that aren't good for you. But there's a whole bunch of things that some people think are good and some people think they're bad. So what is a plant hormetic and are they good? Yeah, well, you introduced it really well. So xenohormesis describes how like different plant compounds can cause a hormetic response in the body through this similar uh, similar pathways. Like they turn on the body's defense pathways. That, like that there are small toxin and the body responds to them by turning on different antioxidant defense systems like glutathione, autophagy, and other other similar AMPK and those things. So yeah, the, the idea is that some like if you definitely I believe that if you take too many of these plant compounds and if your body isn't capable of dealing with them, they then they can eventually cause a negative response. But uh for someone who is healthy and if they take it in like a moderate amount and they take some time from off them, then they can they, they can definitely reap the benefits from it. Like there are a lot of studies showing how different compounds like curcumin or sulforaphane uh, ginger and these different adaptogens, they can have a positive effect on the body uh, by improving like mitohormesis, improving mitochondrial functioning, lowering blood sugar, uh, lowering insulin, and uh, you know fixing certain certain types of metabolic syndrome. They can be useful for that. And some studies where they show that they have like a negative effect, they usually they occur in some people who are like macrodosing them. <laughs> like there's there's this study where uh, uh, an old diabetic uh, Asian woman was uh, juicing like two, or he made a like he made uh, soup out of uh, rhubarb leaves, which are really high in oxalates. So, yeah, like, that'll I, trash you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like who eats rhubarb leaf soup? And uh, like some other studies show where people blend or th they eat two kilograms of bok choy, like uh, I, I, yeah, like, or kale. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's not like really, uh, in the real world, most people don't eat that many of these plant compounds and they don't hit that high threshold. Uh, so they're relatively safe for most people. And yeah, like I think the carnivore diet can be great uh, if you do suffer from some sort of uh, sensitivities towards these plants, but most people don't need to do it. And I would in fact argue that if, you're, if you do avoid these foods all the time, then you eventually will become too sensitive and your body yes. becomes almost like resistant. So you need to, uh, in order to be like metabolically flexible and to have this small amount of hormesis, then you need to be consuming those foods also on like a pretty regular basis. It makes sense. There may be some genetic sensitivities. Like there's, we pretty well understand with lectins. By the way, there's thousands of different lectins. You can't say all lectins are bad. You can't even say cashews are bad. In fact, they're pretty low on the list. Uh, and your body makes its own lectins in, internally every day. But there are some like nightshades where a third of people, if they eat nightshades, it just always causes problems and there is no her hormetic benefit to it. But for, for the rest of us, there is. 
Yeah, for sure. Like individual differences are huge. And uh, also the quality of the food is very important. So xenohormesis is the result of the plant actually being stressed out itself. So, uh, you know, plants are also under different kinds of environmental stressors like the heat, the cold and predators. So they produce those beneficial compounds only if they need to. So uh, if you have a GMO uh, garbage uh, garbage plant that doesn't have that isn't exposed to these kinds of stressors, then it's also going to lack these uh, nutrients that would otherwise be present in a wild plant, for example. So organic and wild plants are inherently more beneficial because they have been stressed out. So those plants are stressed out. That's like well, a lot like the uh, David Sinclair also talks about. You need to kind of eat those plants that have been stressed out because uh, they're stronger and they're more resilient against stress. Whereas the kind of mainstream or the conventional foods, conventional plants, they they come with all the bad stuff. <laughs> they come with all the anti-nutrients and not a lot of the beneficial nutrients. Yeah. So I would I would imagine that part of the reason why uh, the average person suffers a lot of from those sensitivities is because they're eating uh, you know domestic food and they're not eating uh, wild food that would be completely different. It's interesting because. It's possible to raise on a farm food that has appropriate levels of stress. And some days you don't water it, and then it develops a, another flavor. So I just mentioned nightshades before, you know, jalapenos or green chili. If it's hot and dry and you stress them a little bit, man, they're full of that stuff and they'll, they'll you know, melt your skin off when you eat them. Just That's when they taste the best. But if it's too wet, then they're sort of more like bell peppers. And it's environmental stress or insects. Uh, we just figured out that uh, if flowers aren't pollinating when they're supposed to, bees will come in and bite the flowers <laughs> to, to basically piss them off so that they'll bloom. Uh, so the bees are actively producing stress so that then they can get their food. Like, hey, plant, you didn't make me a flower. Come on, yeah. out with the <laughs> pollen. Uh, so yeah, it's this in incredibly dynamic system. I want to get your take on two of my favorite plant compounds. First one, nicotine. What do you think? Uh, I think it's... Uh... It's a potent uh, nootropic and can be useful for cognition. Uh, so the preferable source of nicotine yeah, would be uh, like a gum or a patch or uh, the spray. There, uh, there you go. Inste <laughs> instead of uh, smoking. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I personally don't use it, but I would imagine that um, it can be pretty useful for uh, some uh, nootropic benefits and uh, cognition or some work. The the cognition side of it is is one I've been very interested in, but the the one that has me most interested is right up your alley, and it's actually around um, mitophagy, and it raises levels of PGC one alpha. It's an exercise mimetic, so you'll actually grow mm. more mitochondrial, your mitochondrial biogenesis from very low dose nicotine. So I'm like, if I get a nootropic benefit and I'm using one milligram a day, we're, we're talking low levels. And like you said, don't smoke, don't put tobacco in your mouth, but you can use gum. Uh, I'm a fan of, of Lucy gum because it doesn't have artificial sweeteners and stuff in it. You can use a spray, uh, you can use uh, a patch, but uh, uh, it was the PGC1-alpha and the mitochondrial benefits, especially in the brain that got me going because that was one. The other one is caffeine, another one of these things. What's your take on caffeine? Uh, well, I am a habitual consumer of caffeine, <laughs> in, and I do drink coffee on a regular basis. And uh, I think it's uh, also great, similar for uh, cognition and alertness. But uh, in, from the perspective of uh, autophagy, it also boosts autophagy and also improves mitochondrial function. So yeah, I I like the taste, but I also like the all the 
uh, longevity boosting benefits that you get from caffeine and coffee like you get the uh, reduction in blood sugar and also like protection against uh, neurodegeneration so yeah all in all it's a pretty one of the best uh, substances i think I'm 100% with you there. And you know, if you guys don't know this, I did start Bulletproof Coffee. I think everyone listening already knows. <laughs> so yeah, I, I do have a bias here. But my real bias also comes from a study that said the amount of caffeine in two small cups of coffee doubled ketone production in the morning. So caffeine and nicotine can both be addictive. Uh, so can exercise, uh, by the way. Yeah. In fact, both of all three of them are probably good for you. <laughs> so just not <laughs> yeah. in excess. Uh, just like too much exercise is not going to create hormesis. It's just going to wear you out, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the, okay. the, the dose is uh, where the benefits lie. All right. What about mithraism? Yeah, yeah. Mithraism is, uh, is uh, related to xenohormesis. So there's this uh, ancient myth about uh, the king of Pontus, Mithra, Mithras. And uh, he, his father was the king before him, uh, but he got poisoned. So he figured that it was his mother who was uh, slowly, or he was, the mother poisoned the king. And uh, because of that, Mithras was, you know, very fearful. He ran into the wilds, into the forest. And uh, because, of, because of being afraid of poisoning, he started to ingest small, small, small amounts of uh, plant poisons uh, in, in hopes of making himself immune against it. And it worked. It was great. He was able to kind of build up a certain tolerance to, towards poison. But the unfortunate situation was that uh, he was also, his country was invaded by Romans and uh, he was captured by Romans. So when he tried to poison himself in prison, he failed because he was immune to poisoning. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was a, like a really bad situation or unfortunate because he was, he was able to resist the poison, uh, but he wasn't able to kill himself in, pri in prison. So they executed him instead. There's also a whole cult of Mithras around that. Uh, that came out that was a pre-Christian cult that practiced in in caves. And they had an almost identical uh, myth around the origin of, of Mithras uh, that, is, that matches very much uh, what happened uh, with, uh, with Christ. So there's, when you look get into religious history, you end up saying, oh, there's all sorts of people. In fact, there was a time when many people thousands of years ago would have thought that uh, the the worship of Mithras would have won over the worship of Christ. That there were there were pure and pure kind mm -hmm. of religions, but eventually where we ended up today, um, if you're Christian, uh, has a lot of that sort of baked into it, which to me is fascinating. But it all comes down to this idea uh, that that American listeners will probably remember from the the Princess Bride, uh, which is a, a famous movie uh, where the protagonist the same thing you know takes a little bit of poison so he can swap the wine glass <laughs> with the other guys. Like, I don't care, they're both poisoned, and I didn't die, and you did, ha ha. So. Yeah. It's uh, it's neat how these weave themselves into our society, but really uh, what we're talking about there is getting stronger because of mild doses. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about stoicism. Uh, this is something that uh, you know, Ryan Holiday writes about, uh, something that I, uh, I am a, a proponent of, at least most of it, but not, not necessarily the I have no emotion perspective of stoicism, <laughs> but the actual Greek stuff. So Talk about yeah. your perspective of stoicism. I just want to make sure people listening don't just shut off their listening right now because we're not talking about having no emotions being meat robots. That, that's not the point. <laughs> so, so tell, tell me uh, yeah. what your take on, on hormesis and stoicism is. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. 
There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. So tell, tell me uh, what your take on, on hormesis and stoicism is. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I agree that stoicism um, isn't actually something that is you know, negative or uh, stone cold. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a form, it's a way of thinking where you kind of realize that the, you know, the world itself isn't, uh, isn't, isn't out there to your benefit. Like the, we can't control the outside world. We can't control outside events. Uh, we can only control our own response and uh, who we are as a person. So, um, you know, Stoics realize that you will inevitably come across different stressful events and different kind of challenges, uh, even bad people bad situations, uh, like the plague, like war, like riots, all those things, you can't, they're, they're going to happen eventually. They're inevitable. So uh, what you can only do is uh, realize that they're going to happen. And in so doing, you can also prepare for them in advance. So different kinds of stoic techniques uh, involve, uh, involve uh, visualizing how, how would you react in a bad situation? Like, how would you react if uh, your flight got canceled or how would you react if um, someone someone broke into your house whatever it is if most people don't think about those things they don't even they don't even have it in their in their consciousness ever so they're they're gonna basically freak out whenever those things do happen uh, whereas someone who has practiced this sort of visualization and stoicism then they can at least have some sort of like frame of reference they can at least have some past uh, like psychological experience from it, and they can also make better decision as a result of it. Hopefully, uh, so one of the one of the um, modern day Stoics, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, uh, who's wrote, written books like Antifragile, he's he's written that the a Stoic is someone who like transforms fear into prudence, uh, pain into transformation, and mistakes into action. So it's almost like turning turning uh, garbage into gold, so to say. You kind of flip your perspective mm -hmm. on the situation and you kind of make yourself also mentally tougher against uh, potential stress because, uh, you know, again, stress, you can't avoid it. What you can only do is um, prepare for it and uh, realize that it's going to happen. Years ago, I read uh, Neil Strauss's uh, book called Emergency. Uh, and Neil and I have become friends. Uh, I've been on his show and he's been on my show and uh, I, I've come to respect him and his, his progress as a human being. But in Emergency, he wrote about going and doing urban escape training, basically learning how to be kidnapped and how to escape from it. And the, <laughs> so I went and I did the class that he talked about in his book and they handcuff you, they, hood, they, they put a hood on you, you're in the back of a van and you have to escape and you're running around a town you don't know with no resources, trying to hide from bounty hunters and run missions. And frankly, it scared the crap out of me. I mean, you know, it's not real, but it sure feels real when you're there. And that's an example of what of what we're talking about there. Like yeah. I know that I can handle my shit. Pardon my French there. Um, <laughs> you know, I I know I can I, I can do it just because I I know the stress level. And 
the real badasses in that group are like, oh yeah, why don't you hit me with a taser or a stun gun? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm done, so my nervous system will be all jacked up and I'll still escape and do everything. I wasn't that tough, but I, I did feel like experiencing that level of stress, you know, the heart pounding and, and that sort of thing really was liberating in a weird way. Uh, and mm-hmm. it is that stoic sort of thing. Like, okay, I, I know I can handle it. Uh, so you you get that toughness, uh, but I feel like that toughness is is missing in in large part. Uh, I I I didn't like I will say I I didn't like uh, schoolyard fights when I was a kid, uh, but I might have been in a few of them, and it's a common occurrence, right? And bullying sucks and all that, mm-hmm. uh, but there are a large number of people who grew up who have never been in a schoolyard scuffle before. <laughs> Yeah, and it feels yeah. like that's another way of building. So you you will feel like you're going to die when there's someone trying to harm you, even yeah. if you're in fourth grade. And there's something something validating about saying, you know what, I got my ass kicked. Uh, at least that's what it felt like. But really, you know, someone hit you a couple times in the gut and you cried. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that happened. But the next day you weren't dead. And then your yeah. nervous system's like, you know what, maybe I'm tougher than I thought. It, I, I feel like that that rite of passage as nasty as it as it was might be missing and and there is some toughness that's that's lacking mm-hmm. do you think that that's a, a valid theory is that a part of what we're talking about in stoicism or am i just romanticizing schoolyard fights <laughs> no I, I i agree with you that uh, we don't have these challenges in our everyday life anymore and uh, like we don't have nutritional challenges and we don't have environmental challenges and uh, like a lot of helicopter parenting and that sort of thing can also shield us from other people or bad experiences. So inherently, I do agree that bullying is bad. And I think it's, it's, it is a better, better uh, approach to create more safer environments for yeah. our children and that sort of thing. But at the same time, we shouldn't completely forget about the stress and uh, these challenges either. So I'm, I'm much rather proponent of like voluntary hardship and uh, voluntary challenges. So uh you know, one of the one of the Stoic writers, Seneca, he would basically he was like the richest banker in Rome. He was the richest man, and um, he would still on a like on a monthly basis he would take a few days where he would dress as a beggar and he would eat nothing like you know uh, scraps on the streets and those sort of things. So he would put himself into this very challenging and humiliating situation voluntarily because he didn't want to kind of take his own fortune for granted and he didn't want to become like too soft. Uh, for those things. And uh, I, I believe, uh, personally, we can also embrace similar challenges like sleeping on the floor sometimes, doing some intermittent fasting, uh, you know, maybe missing a good night's sleep, staying up a little bit longer, uh, maybe maybe eating something that you don't really prefer on some days. And those things, they can all be similar challenges that we can create ourselves. So I believe voluntary challenges should be uh, as a like a replacement, even if we do create a, like a very safe environment, we we wouldn't want to completely forget about those things. So it's like a fire drill. Like people still do fire drills, even if the chance of a, like actual fire is uh, relatively low in most places. It's interesting to talk about you know fasting from sleep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. You know that that's something that is uh, that is real. That, that's what the, the Navy SEALs and Special Forces uh, guys do is, oh, you haven't slept for three days, you're still going to go get the target. Oh, and you haven't eaten during those three days as well? Well, that's okay. There's a hamburger at the target if you're the first one there. And man, those guys, I've talked to them. I, I've interviewed them about it. And they develop superpowers as a result of it, but it sucks at the time. And mm-hmm. what I've been working on teaching my kids every night, it's, it's like, what'd you fail at today? 
and, and if they have something they failed at, I'm like, good job. You did something that was yeah. so hard you didn't do it, that you, know, that you, you couldn't yet do it. You haven't learned. So you had a day of pushing yourself. And if you have nothing you failed that day, it's like, oh, maybe tomorrow can be a better day. So the idea is you know, we're, we're not going too far beyond what's possible, but we're taking that sense of frustration and turning it back into, oh, that's a sign that my body's getting good input. And I had to do that myself with hunger as a 300-pound guy to realize, okay, too much hunger all the time is probably not a good thing. But to experience hunger is like, is my body lying to me or not? And it turns out when you're 300 pounds, well, your body's kind of lying because you are feeling hunger and your cells may not be getting enough energy or making enough energy, but that's because they need to get woken up, not because you need to eat more. Uh, and and it, it's it's that tough thing. It is about the stoic mindset. So I'm I'm happy you brought that out in a book on hormesis, uh, which is which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, because I believe like the mindset is kind of the very foundational aspect to being able to adapt to stress. Because uh, if you are if you if you're create this fear around stress, like uh, hysteria and panic about stress, then you're you're never going to do some of those things that you that may be beneficial for you as well. Like you're gonna you're gonna, you know, you're not gonna do the sauna because you're afraid of the heat or it gets too hot, you're afraid of the discomfort, or you're not gonna exercise because it's too discomfortable. So you need to have like some small amount of uh, discomfort in your life in order to maintain like a beneficial, like hormetic uh, adaptation. What's your favorite kind of discomfort? Um, well, I would, I, maybe I would say the sauna is pretty, pretty awesome. Like it feels almost euphoric and it feels uh, really, uh, enjoyable uh, compared to other things like hit cardio or something. Even, even like I, I do enjoy like the fastest state as well, but you know, going for two or three days without eating is still pretty uncomfortable, but the sauna is, uh, is actually enjoyable as well at the same time got it i've been doing the sauna a lot during the whole coronavirus thing uh my son who's 10 wakes up early and and comes and then we, we go sit in the sauna uh we've been doing up to 45 minutes at about 140 uh and kind of worked yeah. our way up to that and uh it, yeah it does feel good i I'm, I'm with you there and plus then we actually get to uh to chat about cool stuff and you know uh, get some, you know, family time at the same time. We're getting some discomfort, which is kind of cool. So maybe he'll grow up to be uh, tough and, uh, you know, hang out like Seneca did. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Let's talk about another one of my favorite topics, uh, which is mTOR or mTOR signaling. I want you to define mTOR for listeners who don't know what it is. So what is mTOR? Yeah, well, mTOR is a mechanistic target of rapamycin, and it's the body's growth switch that uh, promotes protein synthesis, cell growth, uh, cell replication, and uh, survival. So you need to have mTOR to build tissue and to replenish cells and to stay alive, to produce immune cells and all those things. So uh, without mTOR, you would also die. And uh, the kind of controversy around mTOR for the past few years has been that uh, too much mTOR is going to accelerate aging and uh, make you grow cancer cells because uh, it's it's like the growth switch that turns on the growth of everything, including the good and the bad. Uh, but uh, you know, too little mTOR is also pretty uh, unwanted because you're gonna end up losing muscle mass and you're gonna become frail and you're gonna lose your bone density and uh, that sort of thing. So there needs to be a proper balance between those things because. Uh, uh, 
in the modern world, we tend to be gravitated towards too much mTOR stimulation all the time because of eating too many calories, eating too many carbs, as well as uh, just the high eating frequency. So we're able to eat throughout the entire day, which uh, keeps mTOR turned on. So mTOR is uh, sensible mm-hmm. to, nu- to nutrients. So the, often, the more often you eat, the more mTOR stimulation you have. And uh, therefore, the more potential you have or also the growth of these malignant cells. So that's why I believe the best ways of uh, kind of achieving this op- optimal balance between just enough mTOR is to do some form of intermittent fasting and to just like skip a meal every day and to not eat too many carbs and uh, to just keep the overall calorie intake also uh, around your maintenance and moderate. That's a a great description of mTOR and uh, James Clements uh, came on the show a while back and he wrote a whole book about uh, how to turn on mTOR uh, which I think he's also been on your show as well. And he's one of the more brilliant, uh, but maybe lesser known guys out there. And uh, just mind blowing how deep he goes. I think he, he memorized like the birthday of everyone who was an author of every study he's ever cited. He, just, he has a, a brain like that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, so um, I, I looked at this uh, back when the Bulletproof Diet book came out in 2014. So I was doing the research around like 2012. And I proposed this idea of one day a week protein fasting, uh, which is less than 15 grams of protein from any source in order to turn on autophagy, which necessarily restricts protein. Uh, and this is a way to uh, essentially make sure you're not getting any mTOR once a week because you're not getting the amino acids in protein uh, that would do this, the branch chain aminos, but particularly uh, methionine as being one of the bad guys. Um, what, what's your take on, okay, fine, eat today. Just don't eat any protein. Even coconut milk has a little bit of protein in it. You know, if you drink two cans of it, you're probably not going to, you're probably going to get enough on that protein. Um, good idea, bad idea. Uh, well, it, it wouldn't, uh, be detrimental, I think. So, uh, you can still get away with a little bit of protein and a little bit of calories without suppressing autophagy and without turning on mTOR. So it doesn't work in a, like this binary way that even just one calorie is going to break a fast. So there is always like a, like a buffer zone that you can get away with. And yeah, like you mentioned, some amino acids are more mTOR stimulating than others. Specifically, methionine is the mo- most, uh, most uh, widespread amino acid and it's also very mTOR stimulating. And other BC, like the branch chain amino acids like leucine and uh, those things, they, they're also more uh, anabolic in a way. They, they promote growth more than others. And generally, like plant, plant-based sources of protein are lower in these uh, mm-hmm. PCAs and methionine especially. So yeah, like if you eat um, like a plant-based uh, meal with less protein, uh, then you would kind of keep the mTOR pretty low from that because it doesn't have these anabolic amino acids. So yeah, like eating a little bit of uh, like a low-protein day on some days is a pretty okay strategy. I think it's, it's good to have these cycles of some days that you have higher and some days where you have lower. For example, if I'm working out, I'm training or I'm trying to build muscle, then I would inevitably want higher mTOR because it's going to help me to build muscle. Whereas if I'm, you know, maybe maybe taking a break from working out, I'm, I'm resting, I don't have that much high physical activity, then I would aim for a lower intake of protein and specific, specifically less, less animal protein. Yeah, there's a definite case for not eating too much animal protein. Uh, that's uh, that's the case, at least on some days. Other days, you might want to actually have an excess of it just because you're trying yeah. to put on muscle that day. 
And and this goes back to this idea of, is there a steady state for the body? And I I hate to say it, but the people's like, I'm going to be in keto all the time. It's predictable what's going to happen. And I've been saying this for like 10 years now, uh, because you are going to start getting inflammation. It's not going to work very well. And you're going to get insulin resistant. Or if you eat sugar all the time, you're going to have the opposite of that. So, but what we, and if you exercise every day, you're probably not going to like what happens either because you never recover. But as humans, we want habits that we do daily because it's easy. So I'm going to eat the same thing every day. I'm going to skip breakfast every day. I'm going to do this. But it seems like Mother Nature really doesn't want you to do the same thing every day, uh, almost in any state. Um, valid? Yeah, there there is some merit. Uh, I, I think you, you would uh, m- maybe get away with uh, being in ketosis all the time and to a certain extent, as long as you're not introducing carbs or if you are really on a very specific diet. So for example, like you mentioned, uh, eventually you will, your body will become slightly insulin resistant if it's in ketosis all the time, because uh, there's no demand for burning carbs and your body just don't regulates its insulin production and it becomes insulin resistant. It's not the same pathological insulin resistance as you get from uh, being diabetic or, or just overeating, but it's, uh, it still uh, would require a short period of re-adaptation uh, for the body to kind of rebuild its uh, pathways for uh, utilizing carbs. So if a person who is on keto all the time and they then accidentally eat like some cake, then their body would respond in a very negative way because they're insulin resistant. Uh, so uh, there needs to be some like a gradual uh, shifting of the phases if you want to stay still stay relatively healthy from those transitions. Whereas someone who is doing like a cyclical keto diet they're eating carbs on a regular basis, then they are, their ability to stay insulin sensitive, sensitive is higher because they're doing they're eating carbs more frequently. So their their body is still able to burn carbs. So I, I prefer yeah like the metabolic flexibility aspect where you eat eat carbs on a cyclical basis uh, because you get the benefits of both worlds. You get the benefits of ketosis and you get the benefits of uh, the metabolic flexibility. Uh, we're in alignment there, and I've just seen too many women you know, start losing their hair. I've been in ketosis for six months and my cycle's all broken. I can't sleep well and I'm starting to lose hair. Like, well, maybe you should eat some carbs, you know, just saying. And then the same thing with guys. My libido's gone uh, and I don't sleep very well. And maybe you should eat some carbs. So it, it's one of those things where you want the flexibility because the flexibility equals resilience. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of the first people to say, even in my first book, look, if you want to know about keto, just read an Atkins book from 1972. Like I was born back then. And the problem is that you have to change the type of stuff that you eat and that you might want to just cycle it more than we used to. And so I, I think you've arrived at that from your research and all. What I've, what I realized about mTOR uh, when I was writing uh, the Bulletproof Diet was that, all right, the way it works is if you suppress mTOR for a while, then you do something that causes it to turn on, it'll turn on it to a higher degree. So if you're trying to put muscle on, you want a large amount of mTOR for a short period of time. And if you want to avoid inflammation, you want low mTOR when you're not building muscle. If you, if you, if you like uh, shift from uh, like a fasted state into a fed one and you turn on mTOR, then uh, the rebound effect can be substantially higher, so to say, just because the, the body is, you know, coming from a fasted state. And when you're fasting, then the body is breaking down some of its muscle tissue. Uh, but, uh, and, and it creates this, in a way, it's like a beneficial scarcity, like the body perceives that, okay, we've been fasting, and therefore, we need to kind of rebuild some of the muscle. So we're gonna 
overreact and uh, like super compensate for the small decrease in muscle mass that we get from fasting by building more muscle once we start eating. And it, it's especially uh, more predominant if you also exercise. So resistance training and uh, uh, muscle building exercises, uh, weightlifting and those things, those are uh, e- even more important for muscle growth uh, than just the diet. So you need to send like a particular signal for the body to build muscle and uh, resistance training itself turns on mTOR as well, or it kind of prepares the body to turn on mTOR. So once you start eating, then the rebound effect that you describe is going to be much higher. So eating after a workout would inevitably lead to more muscle growth just because the kind of stimulus is there, the stimulus for muscle growth, and then you provide the nutrients as well with, with the diet. The three things that suppress mTOR the most in the research um, that I had done was um, fasting, uh, which clearly you know, we just talked about, resistance exercise, and coffee. <laughs> so the perfect morning is you wake up, you have your coffee, uh, right? Now you already fasted overnight. You fast until you know, midday, whatever, at you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Then you do your resistance training, and then you eat a meal with a bunch of protein in it. And that will maximally suppress your mTOR so that you get the biggest spike. I call it tripling down on mTOR uh, in uh, in the Bulletproof Diet. Uh, and it seems like that is the way to put on the most muscle in the least amount of time. And of course, the stimulus for the muscle needs to be high intensity the way that you and I both uh, talk about in our work. Uh, so you're not going to take a five-pound dumbbell and flop it around. You need to pick up something heavy and do some squats or push-ups or something. But that, that seems to be the way to get the highest spike in mTOR but what I don't really have good data on, where I think you might have done some good research, is, okay, you've eaten your protein after that regimen. How, for how long should you eat protein at higher levels to take advantage of that mTOR before you should go on another intermittent fasting cycle? I just say the next day, but honestly, I haven't, I haven't looked at you know half-life of mTOR in the body or anything like that. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so... It depends a lot on the goals. Uh, so if a person is wanting to build muscle, then uh, they could keep it elevated for longer. And uh, the way you do that is by just increasing the eating frequency. So instead of eating once after workout, you would eat like two times or three times, depending on your goals and preference. And have some carbs too, right? Yeah, yeah. Like protein and carbs is the biggest combo for mTOR. So yeah, like mTOR, there's a, like a certain, certain threshold where the body caps off uh, how much uh, muscle is going to build or how much muscle protein synthesis is going to create from per meal. So uh, that, the way you overcome that is by just increasing the meal frequency. So if you want to really pack on muscle, then you just have to eat like six times a day and uh, do no intermittent fasting. But uh, for like longevity-oriented goals, then narrowing it down a little bit is uh, probably more better. And uh, how, how narrow uh, depends again on, on your own preference. Um, I personally also stimulate once uh, mTOR after a workout and I'll do it like the next day again. So I stimulate mTOR only once a day as well. But uh, but yeah, like for some other people, they can do it twice a day as well. So there's no, there's no real way to quantify it. And uh, you would just have to look at some of your biomarkers, especially like, I, like IGF-1 and insulin. If your IGF-1 is really high, then that would mean that your body is in a more anabolic state and uh, state of growth. Whereas if your IGF-1 is low, then it means that your... Uh, less anabolic and uh, less mTOR stimulated. Talk to me about EMFs. Um, are, are they hormetic? I mean, should I, should I stick my head in the microwave every now and then? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's also a controversial topic. And <laughs> uh, I, I personally think that 
from a biological perspective, there is uh, some hormetic effect from EMFs and uh, radiation even. So, uh, because imagine like most people who are in like New York City or Los Angeles, they are constantly surrounded by tons of EMF uh, all the time, but they barely even notice it uh, because the body has kind of developed small amount of adaptation towards it. Whereas if you take like a hunter-gatherer from the Amazon and you put them into the middle of Times Square, then their, their brain is probably going to melt down or they're going to feel really anxious and really stressed out because they're not used to that EMF and uh, those are, that's a form of radiation and that blue light. So there is some small amounts of uh, adaptation that can occur. You, the only caveat is that you need to have some period of downtime from the EMF. So if you're constantly in a soup of EMF, then your body never has the opportunity to adapt and recover from it. So that's why... Yeah. I think the most important time where you need to have a break from EMF is when you're sleeping, because uh, during sleep, your body repairs itself, it conducts all these antioxidant uh, defense mechanisms, it uh, conducts autophagy, it releases growth hormone, all those things. So your sleep has to be pretty low EMF. And uh, for that, you can use some, you know, turn off your Wi-Fi, that's really important. Uh, use some maybe grounding mats, or even like a like a Faraday cage, if you're that dedicated. So yeah, like just making sure that you have some period of the day where you're not in a high EMF environment, then I would believe that you would uh, experience some hormetic uh, effects. At least, at least you would uh, experience some adaptation or some resiliency against it. Definitely some resiliency. And I'm a good case study there. I live on a farm in a low EMF environment. We turn off our Wi-Fi at night. In fact, it's turned off during the day most of the time. So we have pretty darn low EMF. Uh, Dr. Mercola came up here and we hung out and you know, he walked around with his meter and I have a similar meter and, and all. And he's like, wow, this, this is amazing. Like, you, know, you don't have to do any remediation stuff here. Uh, and uh, that said, I travel a lot. I'm on airplanes a lot. I'm in hotels surrounded by garbage stuff a lot. And for a while... Years ago, I actually traveled with a little Faraday cage, little sleeping bag thing. It, it was just too heavy. It only weighs a pound or something. But when you don't want to check your luggage, uh, then you know every ounce matters. And it was just too much bulk uh, for the value. And I, I could feel a little bit of a difference, slight changes in heart rate variability, but not enough to matter. Uh, mm -hmm. So I quit doing that. Uh, and I don't know that the fact that I have that kind of hunter-gatherer experience here um, has made it so I feel worse when I'm in Wi-Fi. I feel like I don't have an, any difference, uh, but I'm just an N equals one study. Yeah. The the body has the body also has like coping mechanisms against uh, EMF. So, for example, uh, EMF actually turns on autophagy to a certain extent as a as a like a defense response. So, uh, e EMF causes oxidative stress, and the body starts repairing that oxidative stress uh, with autophagy. So I wouldn't recommend, you know, using EMF as a way to cause autophagy. But uh, at the same time, you can know that uh, the body has these uh, defense systems like uh, autophagy and glutathione that can help you to deal with the stress um, more. So I would also argue that if you go into an airplane uh, while fasted and uh, with some ketones present, then you would uh, experience less negative symptoms because your body has more 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 antioxidant activity and more autophagy activity that will clear out the oxidative stress in real time, so to say. And uh, yeah, the problem is that most people, they're constantly inhibiting autophagy. They're putting breaks in autophagy with their high-carb diet and uh, high-eating frequency diet as well. So they're never protected from the EMF and therefore they experience also more negative side effects from it. It's true. Uh, I do have ketones present all the time. I use brain octane. 
pretty much every day, especially when I travel, I take more of it, which directly converts into ketones in the body. So uh, there isn't that much time where I don't have either ketones I produced or ketones that I added. Uh, and I've noticed a big difference when I fly from that. Uh, I also use Pulse EMF. We have this at Upgrade Labs. I, I have one kind of over there behind me. And you can really radically improve bone density. This is pulsed EMF. It is specific frequencies and strengths, uh, and it'll cause bones to heal much faster than they otherwise would. It'll cause growth of mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. So we know EMFs have a health effect. And, and the big question here is, okay, does frequency matter, right? And I think the, the questions are still out there. Uh, and uh, we've had a lot of, of discussion in the biohacking world about voltage-gated calcium channels and mitochondrial performance. Uh, Dr. Mercola came on the show, had a couple other guests uh, talk about that. Uh, and uh, from that perspective, I, I am concerned that, that any of these things, but 5G might be worse, but any of them chronically are going to cause mitochondrial, it's called heteroplasmic, basically your mitochondria don't work as well, that they're less effective. Uh, do you think frequency matters, or is it just the strength of the signal that matters? Um, yeah, I, I, be, I believe uh, the PMF can be beneficial and uh, useful. So there's definitely uh, not all EMF is the same. And I would also imagine that 5G would be more stronger than 3G, for example. Or it, it would have like a more negative effect on the body than 3G. And also like the the how close to you are to a particular source of that EMF. So if you literally, if you have your phone underneath your pillow while you're sleeping, then that's going to be really bad <laughs> compared uh, yeah. to something. Yeah. yeah. Compared to like, even if your even if your neighbors do have the Wi-Fi turned on, it's not nearly as bad as having the phone right on your body and underneath your pillow. So I really like the, the kind of vicinity or the, the distance from the source matters and the intensity also matters. Well, Seem, I really appreciate your work. Uh, you you do heavy duty research, uh, the kind of stuff uh, that I I really appreciate, uh, so that you can come at things with an informed perspective, but also you know say look there are areas we don't know or there's conflicting research, but you're willing to go out there and say, you know, even though there's conflicting research, based on the sum of what I've seen, the people I've talked to, etc. I'm going to place my bet here. <laughs> and so much of academia, they will not place their bet ever. And they'll say, we should all do nothing until we have certainty, even though there is no such thing as academic certainty. So there's almost like this built-in fear, we'll call it a lack of hormesis and resilience in academia, because something you say one time might be proven wrong. And heaven forbid, if someone did something based on the current state of knowledge, uh, so it's it's that biohacking mindset that you have that says, all right, given all the stuff that's out there, let's weigh all this all the things, and then let's decide to do something, and then course correct. That's I feel like how humans evolve uh, versus how we stay stagnant. <laughs> and we just talked about what stagnation does uh, stagnation equals death. Uh, so thank you for continuing to push uh, push the limits here. Appreciate your work, and people can buy your new book on uh, on Amazon. What's the best way to search for your book on Amazon? It's uh, called Stronger by Stress. And uh, my name is Seam Lund. All right. So if you Google for Stronger by Stress, and Seam is S-I-I-M. So Stronger by Stress Land is almost certainly going to help you find it. And it is a book that's worth your time if you like the show and you've really taken the time to look at fasting, to look at ketosis, to look at hormesis, and to look at the things that make you stronger, make you perform better, 
there's a lot of research, a lot of data in here, uh, and it's well uh, it's well written and well formulated. So thank you for taking the time to write a comprehensive book like this. You know, a couple thousand references takes a lot of time. I appreciate you, Seem, and I look forward to having you on the show again. Yeah, I appreciate it for having me, and yeah, glad to talk with you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.